Are you recording? I am. I'm recording. All right, we're recording. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Apparently, we're recording. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, still, still waking up a little bit. Uh, uh, how about yourself? I'm good. I'm still waking up a little bit too, even though we are in different time zones. We both have managed to be in a state of waking up at the same time. I, I hope you're having a little less caffeine than me at the moment, uh, given how much later in the day it is for you. Oh, certainly. I am. I am strictly on on fizzy water at this point. Right? I was drinking a little bit of tea earlier, but um, now I switched to fizzy water. <laughs> so, <laughs> cut. <laughs> um, right. So, how's your week been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, I, I, you know, what's interesting about this podcast is it um, it does something that's very similar to what I was experiencing when I was doing kind of solo dev and writing dev logs all the time. Um, like I was when I was trying to start a game many years ago, I was writing a devlog at least every week sort of thing. Um, and what that did was kind of gave me a little bit of accountability as to what I've actually been working on. Um, this past week, uh, you know, f- for people who listened, um, they, they heard me talk a little bit about me experimenting with, uh, my own, uh, GUI uh, graphical user interface library for rust, um, that I, I think has some merits and I, I mentioned that I might even do a blog post about it because I thought it was kind of at a point maybe that, you know, I would uh, solicit some feedback and find out whether or not I was way off the mark on it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, instead of working on bonsai, like I should have been, <laughs> I spent all week <laughs> kind of just pontificating on uh, this GUI library, which uh, the more I work and think about it, the more excited I get, which, uh, you know, to me means that I really should keep pursuing this to some extent. But uh, I did also just start a podcast with someone that we're talking about making a game and feels like they're really the wrong time to get excited about something like this. So um, so I still really want to get this to a point that I'm demonstrating, uh, you know, kind of what my vision is. And what I had at the end of last week uh, demonstrates that it's technically feasible. But it didn't really show what my vision really was. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm trying to take it, which means I've been focusing on trying to add some like style, like how I want to deal with styling my uh, user interface, which is a pretty complicated pro- problem um, that we might want to do. It's a very complicated but, problem, right? Um, but before we do that, how was your week? My week has been absolutely fantastic. My uh, previous week... I ended up uh, being offline because one of our bunnies went into the cabling and ate the fiber optics. So I was I was in the middle of a stream and all of a sudden it all died. And, and I went upstairs and, and I looked at my family and asked very politely if they touched anything. Um, <laughs> and I looked down and I see my kid sitting on the floor petting the bunny while it's in the mess of cables. And... Um, <laughs> And my heart sank a little bit, and I thought, okay, if it just ate any of the Ethernet cables, then we can just make a new one. But uh, if, if it eats the fiber, then we're out of luck. And, and I look in there, and I see nothing, but then I sort of I catch the fiber coming out of the wall, and it's sort of just hanging limply, chewed off, and uh, <laughs> strands of, uh, um, of, 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 uh, of, of this sort of fuss in there is just hanging out. And um, yeah, so that was that was fun. And 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 then this morning, 
my I went down to have a shower and the uh, the floor is just covered in water so the the <laughs> the drain is backed up so it's just it's just one one new thing every week I have no idea what next week is going to bring but I am terrified and excited at the same time I mean you can just be thankful that after last week's uh, discussion about you know flying fire bunnies in space that uh, your bunny didn't try to reenact that uh, with a power cable instead. Um, so <laughs> this this is true. So we went from fire bunnies to fiber bunnies with this one. Yeah, but there uh, you go. It it it, it happens. It, the thing is, it's not the first time it happened. It's, it's it's not the first time it happens. And I reckon at some point I'll be calling my ISP and say hi, and they'll be hi. It's me again. It happened, and then they just send another cable because it just the, the bunnies just keep eating the. The, uh, they're trying to keep a high fiber diet. That was a terrible joke. I, said. I regretted that <laughs> the moment I said it. Um, the good, the uh, good thing yeah. is, is that I am a fan of uh, the so-called dad jokes, and that was a great one. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's been when when it comes to the world of programming, I can't say that I have done the amount of progress that I wanted to do. Right? I got I got very close. So I'm I'm sort of like I'm looking at the last uh, the last thing to finish. I wonder if, if, if developers are inherently self-destructive because I'm looking at this thing and I, I think like we can finish this with 10 lines of code. But before I dare to finish it, I'm thinking, is there anything I should fix? Is there anything I should clean up? It's a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit like that, that you know, did you ever see the movie Memento, right? He, oh, yeah. He kind of just, yeah, so, so you know, like it's like, it's a bit like that. Maybe we just, maybe we just, you know, Maybe we just pull a little bit at some code over here and then, oh, it all fell apart. We have to go and fix this now. And, and, you know, you know, I feel like it's a little bit like that, right? It's a little bit like, and I think this is the, this is the hunt for perfection, right? You, you're trying yeah. to, you're trying to make something as good as it can be, which means it's never going to be done. And, and worst case scenario, this ends up in, in, in another, Tom, uh, another tomb in the uh, in the uh, you know the 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 side project graveyard and uh, and of course I, I can't let that happen to something I've invested this much time into but uh, it is a little bit terrifying but I am I am very close to to um to finishing this off but I feel like I've been saying that for a very long time now. <laughs> Um, well, I think we're going to probably have many more of these podcasts where we say similar things. So I had never really thought about Memento as an analogy for this. So for, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Memento is one of my like kind of a classic movie in my, in my mind that I'll occasionally go back and rewatch, but it's been several years. Um, and it's one of those that has a stick to it. Um, and what it is is that this guy has uh, uh, no ability we, we do to a spoiler warning for anyone. Yeah, who hasn't you know it? what? Let's let's do a slight. Well, I, no, I, and we're not going to actually spoil it. I'm just going to give the premise of the movie, really, because uh, that's all we need to, to to tell the analogy. He basically has no short term uh, short term memory, like ability to retain new short term memories. So he has his old memories up until this certain point, and then he basically kind of leaves notes for himself to try to help him remember and track down. Uh, the plot point essentially you know is solve a murder essentially um and it's done by christopher nolan which uh is mu he's much more famous now than he was when he released it's one of his earlier movies um and it's a great one so people should potentially look at it but um it's, it's the sort of thing movie, that yes. he, he he has to go back and you know similar to how we go back and look at some of our code that we haven't looked at in a long time and there's almost like little clues here, little comments there, like a little to do there, maybe, you know, a to do comment or, a, you know, maybe it's completely outdated because the code is completely different than when the original 
comet was written, you know? And so you're like piecing together this little mystery, uh, you know, little bits and pieces, and then you'll discover, oh, wait, right. That, that's how that part works. And then you'll go off on a new tangent and, you know, yeah, I, I think Memento's a really good analogy. Yeah, go, 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 let's sneak in and change your Git log messages and, and just add random commits by Sammy Jenkins and, 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 <laughs> and just <laughs> really, really keep yourself in your toes there, right? Um, but yeah, we talked about, we talked about GUI, right? And, um, and we talked a little bit about styling and, and what happens, what happens when, when we talk about styling, right? We, we had this conversation the other day, um, about style sheets, right? Yeah. And, um, and uh, and everyone everyone has their opinions on CSS, but when you ask them what's a better alternative, there's never a better alternative. Yeah. No one has a better alternative. Yeah, I have a friend who I'm not going to name because uh, this this does potentially paint them in a slightly bad light. But I actually really like it about them. Um, uh, they push me to better designs a lot of times by you know suggesting that things can be better. Um, and uh, I was ch- chatting with them about, you know, how to style things. And um, their response was, you know, this looks so much like CSS and isn't CSS really bad? You know, I don't like CSS. And, you know, and I I took that to heart, started trying to figure out, well, what's wrong with CSS? I start Googling and 90% of the complaints that I find about CSS are all in the early browser days where, you know, the support for CSS was different, very different between browsers. Yes. There are quirks still, you know, between browser support, but largely today you can actually just write CSS and it mostly works across the modern browser suite. Right. Um, and so a lot of the arguments that I see against CSS date back to, you know, most of those issues and modern CSS isn't that bad in my book. Um, that being said, it's way more complicated than I want in my system because I have to implement it, right? Like, if I'm, uh, you know, for the DOM, it's really easy, uh, you know, for, for running in the web browser, I can just use CSS. Like at the end of the day, what I, what you use to style GUI apps, uh, will translate to CSS in the browser. That's how you style things in the browser. Um, mm. so being similar to CSS works really well for that. Uh, but if I go and like try to make myself exactly CSS, um, or, you know, try to implement every feature that CSS has, which, you know, is a moving target given all the extensions, et cetera. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I would end up with having to implement so much code to support the native versions, um, that, you know, the, the better approach is to try to pick, um, and choose specific, you know, things that I plan on supporting, you know, and, and trying to, to build them up that way. Um, so. I don't know where that thought was going. This is the side effect of me oh, maybe, uh, still waking yeah, up. Yeah, but maybe but. <laughs> some some kind of subset of of, of CSS could could work. Yeah. Right? maybe a more restricted, a re, yeah, restricted model where you have uh, maybe some um, more specifics, like you will get compile errors for unused classes, or you can't, uh, or, or you have like a limited set of what you can and can't style, or or such. Right? Uh, but it's it is complicated. I think it's very complicated these things. Um, one thing that makes com- makes these things complicated is that you don't know how users might end up doing something, right? Because we always have this idea or this picture of how how am I going to use the software I'm writing, and that's you know that's how we write the software. But when we go to how is our users going to use the software, that that will that usually gives you a very surprising insight, and and you end up in situations where you say, oh wow, I had no idea. 
this is what anyone even thought about doing with this. And sometimes this can be interesting uh, results. Sometimes this can be um, confusing because you've clearly missed to communicate something to the user and so on. So I think it's very interesting. But but limiting this surface a little bit about what you can do might, might not be a bad idea. I, I don't know if it is or not. I'm just saying it might not be. It, I think the, the biggest issue is that with limited styling support, um, the the look and feel of all the apps built with GUI will be pretty similar, right? Um, like all the buttons are going to be, you know, rectangular if I don't support rounded corners, for example, right? Um, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so like I have to pick and choose what all I want to be themable or styleable because another way to think about this instead of style sheets to think about it, about it as like a theming type solution instead. Um, cause, uh, really the purpose at the end of the day of what I want to build versus what CSS tries to do are a little different. Like there are similar overlaps of goals, but, um, I do have a list of goals somewhere. I'm not prepared to pull them up right now of kind of what a styling solution, uh, needs to accomplish, um, you know, from like just a usability standpoint. So like the a couple of examples, uh, I think that being able to create a custom like login form widget or something like that um, is is a good uh, test of a lot of UI frameworks uh, stuff because uh, a login form has some basic validations in it, so you need to be able to display that you know the input is incorrect, um, like if you know uh, they have invalid user characters in the username or the password is not meeting the requirements or whatever. Um, then you also have an OK button which should be styled with the primary color, meaning that when you hit the enter button, that's going to activate, right? Um, there's also a cancel button that somehow needs to take you back out of the login screen that you're in. Like, There's a lot of little tiny bits and pieces that have to get tied together to make a login form work. Tab navigation, like it has it all. Um, and so, uh, but, but if I wanted to make a generic login form widget that other people could use, um, how do I style the submit button in my theme? Like, how do I refer to that, you know, that it's a subchild of this custom control? I need to somehow be able to give it some sort of label, right? And like, so there's all these interesting features that uh, arise from coming up from from thinking about what the goals of trying to accomplish the the individual theming requirements might be. And that particular one that I talked about, the the kind of targeting a child of a custom widget was something mm. in my previous uh, attempt at styling in GUI, so GUI take one, if you want to call it that, um, uh, failed at. Like there was, you could assign an ID or classes to various things to kind of work around it. But um, ultimately there was no good way to say that the submit button of the login form custom widget, uh, you know, should have this color instead um, in your style sheet rules. Um, instead you were saying, you know, any button that has this class has this particular set of rules, which is an okay approach. It just was to me, uh, uh, it's one of those things that feels more loose as opposed to really feeling like truly tied together. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that made any sense at all. Like with rust, when you tie types together, the compiler helps you, um, right? And like everything feels cohesive and you know that when you hit run, uh, at least there's a certain class of errors that aren't there. And I kind of want that with uh, more of the styling information, if that makes sense. Um, you know, just a little bit more checking and uh, um, the ability to, to target things reliably without worrying that you're accidentally um, uh, mucking with things that are used somewhere else, but you just didn't realize it, which I think classes can sometimes be that way. 
That is a typical issue with CSS, though, that you might be doing just that. You specify a very generic style somewhere and you start, spe- you, you add specificity, right? And, and, and uh, you start styling something accidentally by not being too specific, but uh, being more specific, overriding styles of, of this generic thing. So that is, of course, a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, but at the end of the day, what's funny is that um, I, my week was similar to yours, it sounded like, uh, because uh, if I was to summarize what I did this past week, I would summarize it as premature optimization. Because <laughs> um, I, I did a lot of little tiny things that absolutely do not impact the demo. And I did them at moments where I was stuck with a, oh, well, how do I really want to make that work? And then I was like, well, in the meantime, I'll go do this other thing that'll make it, you know, even better, right? You know, um, the like <laughs> little tiny optimizations of switching from string to box stir in my uh, string interning crate, um, which saves, you know, like eight bytes uh, per stored string, uh, you know, but these are heap allocation things. It's, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Like, it's not like we're having millions of these things lying around, right? Like, uh, so, but like little tiny optimizations like that were quite nice. Um, I looked at like that, like the idea of how style components are stored, um, you know, to me with a limited number of style components, if you want to call them them, like, like to font size, font family, those in CSS are what I would call individual components. Um, mm. So creating like a group of these components together, um, I had previously used a hash map to do that um, because I was looking them up randomly by, you know, their names or whatever you want to call them. And I, I, I had a thought the other day of like, you know, these are all really small collections normally. Like I, the most complicated styling I can imagine would still probably have less than 30 components, like easily, right? Like to me, that's a lot. Um, Because one of the things that CSS does is there's a lot of stuff that's inherited. And so, yeah, there's a ton of components out there that just get passed down because everything's inherited. Well, not everything. Most things are inherited, it seems like, from the parent, uh, you know, uh, parent uh, elements. Um, Whereas in my system, I want a lot of stuff to not be inherited because I want you to be, you know, focused in on where you're actually applying styles at. Um, So because of that, my collections of these components are going to be pretty small. So the question I had was, would an ordered vector be faster than a hash map? And then if so, how does an ordered vec compared to B-tree map or B-tree set, for example? Um, so that was a fun diversion, um, which for my use case, because I'm using a pro- an approach called string interning, which allows me to basically know that every instance of um, this particular type, um, the inner string will always point to the exact same string you know stir slice under the hood so i can actually do pointer comparisons um and actually order them based on the pointers which makes them integer compares at that point right as opposed to having to look at the contents of the string to do the sorting inside of this collection i could just do pointer sorting and it all just will work out so um it turns out that you know up until about like 50 elements in my particular use case on my particular hardware. These are things that benchmarks are going to be different everywhere. Um, <laughs> up until about that much, the ordered vec beats hash map and B tree map significantly. Um, and uh, with, with a little tiny hint that I find really clever. Um, uh, so binary searching um, allows you to kind of split the data set in half, then split it in half, split it in half, split it in half until you finally get down to only one element remaining. And now you know you either found it or you didn't, right? Um, mm. That is a classical beach, uh, binary search. Um, 
but the sequential search is better for caches on modern CPUs, where you just scan from zero, one, two, three, four, just searching for it. So the question for me was, what if you merge the two? So you do a binary search uh, until you get to the point that the window that you need to scan is small enough, and then you scan that that's final window instead of continuing to be treat, you know binary search until you finally get down to the one element. Um, and it turns out that is even faster. <laughs> so, um, so it's, you know, all these premature optimizations that at the end of the day are shaving literal nanoseconds off of operations. Um, you know, that, that's the summary of my week. Um, but in between then I had some good design thoughts at the end of the day, I didn't get Bonsai's release out, you know, and, uh, I have just a faster library that no one uses. <laughs> so. <laughs> But there's so there is premature optimization and then there's premature optimization, right? And in this case, as I would say, it sounds like a more more of an interesting adventure than than committing the uh, the the programming crime of premature optimization. Um, I'm I'm gonna back up a little bit to what you mentioned. You mentioned Boxster versus String, right? And you said you yeah. save eight bytes, but um, this might not entirely be clear of why you save eight bytes. No. Um, and what's funny is that literally the day after I did all that work, <laughs> someone in our Discord server asked about saving space in their structures. And one of them, one of the suggestions I had back to them was uh, potentially using a box stir instead of string for saving those eight bytes. Um, so yeah, what a, a stir under the hood is a pointer to the bytes that can that the stir slice contains, um, but it also contains a length. So how many bytes that string slice actually is. Um, so on a 64-bit system, that's 8 bytes plus 8 bytes, 8-byte pointer for the data and 8-byte um, U-size for the length of the, the bytes contained within it. Um, so that's 16 bytes. What does a string add on top of that? Well, the string adds um, what portion of that allocated length is actually being used because a string can be larger than the actual like allocated length. Ultimately, a string is just a wrapper around a VEC. Um, and so... Uh, you know, under the hood, as you know, you can make a, well, as you may know, um, you can make a vector with a, a, a starting capacity that's bigger, you know, it's really big or it doesn't matter. It has an initial capacity so that even though its length is zero at start, um, as soon as you start pushing to it, the memory is already there behind the scenes for that capacity you allocated. So the string is uh, using a vec under the hood and stir is very similar to a U8 slice. Um, which is just byte size, right? Um, and so uh, that extra link thing um, is all the differences between those two. I am realizing now that um, as I'm getting to the end of this cup of coffee, I have no idea how well I did explaining it. I feel like I just rambled. <laughs> well, you know what? To, to sum it up, a boxster does not contain a capacity, so you save eight bytes on a 64-bit system. Yes. Um, and, it, and it allows you to use boxster, right? There's very rarely that we use string slice without the ampersand, right? We, we usually yeah. um, have that. So, so that is something, right? Um, it's not, it, honestly, it's something I've never thought about, right? I never thought about the fact that you can save on that. I always go to either string or... I start peppering lifetimes uh, across my yep. structs because, you know, going to keep that reference. I never thought of, of the fact that you can just shrink the, uh, the, the wasted, the wasted um, eight bytes there by boxing it. That's interesting. And, and converting from a string to a box string is free, basically. Pretty much. Um, it's, it's as close to free as you can get um, under the hood. It basically just extracts the pointer um, to, to an extent. Um, 
so yeah, it's uh, and there's literally an into box stir function uh, um, on on string to do it. Um, and that mm. the same optimization exists for path buff versus path, um, and um, and and you know vec u8 versus a uh, uh, box of u8 slice. All right. Um, should we talk a little bit about uh, the the <laughs> the progress of the game? <laughs> no. Um, well, what I wanted to talk a little bit about today uh, that we haven't touched on is questing and quests. Oh, yes. I I I was I was sitting down having a conversation with my wife before this podcast, and um, and I suddenly asked her um, what kind of quests, or I said fetch quests, right? Um, I said, as you normally do when you're sitting next to your wife, you can just shout a fetch quest, and um, <laughs> it's just to really, just to really keep uh, keep her on her toes, right? Um, but I, I asked her, like, so what do you what do you think about fetch quests, and what's been your favorite quest in any in any game we have played, right? So a little backstory: my wife and I, we we play games sometimes. We're not hardcore gamers, and and she didn't have an answer for that one. So there's an, there's no. Um, culmination to some really interesting uh, quest in some game somewhere right we just had this conversation a little bit trying then out and i was trying to figure out um what makes for good quests right and since our game is going to be this kind of open universe right that you exist in uh then there should probably be some kind of purpose um, driven other than by your choices, or maybe there shouldn't, right? We haven't, we have not discussed this, right? Um, so what do you think? What do you think about questing systems in general? Well, I'm still curious to find out what your wife said, but uh, my, uh, I find questing an important aspect, but I don't find it to be the the thing that compels me in game design right now. Um, like I, I would love to say that we can come up with some fancy new version of questing that solves all the problems that you know we might all talk about. The with. Problems, yes. But, but realistically speaking, I just I think that that's uh, impossible because <laughs> I think that there's just some fundamental problems with with the questing style uh, approach of things that are just unavoidable. Um, you know, for example. Uh, without things like regen- regenerative AI, that's a that's a fun uh, misnomer there. Uh, without generative <laughs> AI, um, I don't know how you make quests stay interesting because eventually you start getting the same quests again. You know, right? Like, um, and I don't necessarily want to have, uh, as we kind of talked in the previous episode, uh, AI actually fully writing <laughs> the game for us, right? Um, so I. I don't know what the right balance is because either you need a lot of different quests so that people uh, don't eventually get bored by getting the same quests over and over, uh, or you look for other ways to make the game interesting, uh, which is where I've been trying to think about it less. Like I still think there's probably going to be some sort of quest like system. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I like the idea of trying to focus on building more of a MMO that is systematic. So like, um, systematic games are like these games where you design a bunch of individual uh, things that you can do in the game, um, but in different they, they interact with each other in different ways, so that um, kind of new things emerge from the combination of multiple activities in the game. Um, and to me, that's a way you can get a lot of potentially free benefit from a lot of uh, smaller design systems that just 
are designed to work well together. Um, and that's where I've been focusing on my thoughts most of how do you, how do you make a compelling world that there's a lot of things you might want to do in it and ways to give you individual goals without making them be quests, if that makes any sense at all. Um, so quests yeah, without so being quests. I'm kind of leaning towards not having quests as a, a initial goal of the game. Um, but that's mostly because I just don't know how to make them any better. And I, I kind of, rather than add a system that feels uh, problematic from the get-go, I, I kind of feel like I just push that bucket down the line, if that makes any sense. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I guess you could you could take something like the the um, the obvious fetch quest, and you can build that into the game as a non-quest. There are many games out there which feature things like trading, right? Which is yep. a f essentially a fetch quest. Go there, get this, go back, sell for a different price. You don't really, you don't really, uh, you don't really deliver a quest, right? You, you're not, you're not on a quest. You're instead, well, you're at work, aren't you? You're, you're kind of doing a, a job and you get a reward for the job. Um, mm -hmm. One alternative uh, would also be to have uh, user generated. Um, systems that are acting mm -hmm. within subsystems. Um, so they are limited in scope and we can do things like events and, and the like. That's a, that's another alternative to these things as well. So maybe not a uh, straight out quest. I do like some story elements perhaps, but seeing as we, we haven't really talked about whether the world ever resets, um, but with a world that doesn't reset, you can't really you can't really have quests uh, that are attached to the world they would have to be sort of attached to to private instances right so the the player can only interact with the quest but that takes away um interacting with the quest together with other people unless you have the notion of forming a party right um, yeah but even then i've 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 played a couple of different mmos uh in mmo light games with friends and um, the questing systems can be problematic when trying to go through the game. You know, like in a lot of MMOs, uh, you're either forced to like do the, the same content twice or well, not twice, once for every party member. Just in my case, it's often twice because I'm just playing with one other person. But, um, you know, that, that doesn't feel fun, right? Like, oh, we're going to go fight this boss twice now. Once for you, <laughs> once for me. Um, some other MMOs allow you to just do joint turn-ins and you know joint completions and stuff like that, but you know it it, it can be uh, immersion breaking um, to have those sorts of of elements. Um, going back to one thing you mentioned about player kind of generated uh, quest, um, to me Eve Online has one of those systems, which is the delivery system. Um, you can set up a contract um, that says I need to move X meters cubed of stuff. From location A to B, and I'm going to pay you this much to do it. Um, and then there's people that can go and search for these available contracts, and they can decide whether any of them make any sense. Um, and I, that's a really cool player gen player generated system that is like Quest. You're doing essentially fetching a box from one location, delivering it to another station. Uh, but the game author didn't have to do anything to support it from a story perspective. So we have user-generated fetch quests now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. I guess. I guess there is. There is. Uh, but that is an interesting system, right? Um. I don't know how that works. I have not played Eve Online. I saw someone play it once many years ago. Uh. But I have zero knowledge of um, Eve Online. 
Um, but uh, it, it sounds interesting. If you can have a set of rules that you can specify and attach a reward to that, then you could ba- you could build user-generated, um, uh, or you can have the facility for having user-generated quests. And they, they could obviously derail into something very silly, uh, do something that takes uh, an, an incredible amount of time for practically no reward, but I'm guessing there would be no interest in solving such a quest, right? It would be exactly um, if you if you price them for too cheap, you you might just never get your stuff delivered. You know that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, to talk about how these systematic, like my vision of a systematic game, Eve, Eve Eve's contract system actually has a lot to delve into because uh, when you go and ship uh, something from location A to B, you can actually look at the contents of the package <laughs> so you can see what they've shipped. And so there's a whole collateral system that allows you to say, okay, for you to take this shipping, uh, you know, c- contract, you have to put this much money in escrow, essentially. And if you fail to deliver, um, the person who sent the goods gets to keep the money. Um, and you can unwrap the package, uh, which f- will fail the delivery immediately. So <laughs> there's this interesting um, set of uh, of things that can happen if you undervalue your collateral amount. Um, you know, they, someone might just accept the contract and steal your stuff because it's a net profit for them still. <laughs> and, uh, and if you, if you overvalue it way too much, you may not get people accepting your contracts because it's just cost way too much in collateral. Um, if so they don't want to necessarily give up that much, uh, you know, money temporarily. Um, uh, and then, you know, the other thing that can happen too, is you can have people put malicious contracts up that purposely, uh, like, uh, mess with the value to make it so it makes sense for you to get ganked. So, uh, you know, they'll put some high value thing in it, um, and, uh, get your, actually, actually forget how that scam works, but, uh, essentially there's a way to scam people, uh, where you end up, uh, um, essentially killing them on purpose <laughs> um, ah, to, to, to well, reap rewards for it. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's all sorts of fun emergent gameplay that all comes from just this one system being in play. Um, and I really like, well, technically there's multiple systems in play, but um, that's the type of thing that I want in our game where there's like just layers of, of interesting ways that you can use the systems in the game to have fun. Welcome to our podcast where we teach you how to scam people in Eve Online. Exactly. <laughs> um, you used a term called ganked. Can you uh, yeah. explain that one? Oh to yeah, me? sorry. Uh, yeah, that's probably pretty pretty popular in uh, in Eve, and I'm not sure how how. Uh, anyways, uh, ganking is the idea of uh, just killing someone um, in a situation where they shouldn't be able to be killed normally. Um, so the, in Eve online, there's this whole security system um, where if you attack someone in a high security area, the police will show up um, and kill you in turn, um, which sounds like that would prevent people from killing each other in high security space. The problem is, is that, well, not problem. The way they've designed the game is that the police take a little bit of time to show up. And so you design these glass cannon ships that put out an incredible amount, either a really high volley, so that they just alpha ships off the field right away, um, or you know something that's really high DPS to uh, to try to kill things as quickly as possible before the police show up, because then the contents of that ship uh, randomly uh, has a full ch- it's a full loot table uh, with with Eve. It potentially could drop the whole ship, but it's all random, so most of the time you only get a portion of the cargo. And you never are guaranteed to get any of it. 
Um, but so then this cargo pod will eject once you blow up that ship. Concord, the police come in and kill all the people who are aggressing. And uh, the owner of the ship can go back to that cargo and take it without causing anything to happen. But if anyone else comes to that cargo pod and takes the contents, they get flagged as a suspect, which now allows anyone else to fire on them. So this whole system emerges of uh, ganking in air quotes, where you try to uh, you know identify high value targets and blow them up on purpose to try to get you know either just for prestige because hey I killed a really valuable thing it doesn't really matter I did it for the the lull so to speak mm-hmm. um, or uh, you know you actually netted some profit by uh, you know swooping in and stealing the goods uh, on a ship that is really hard to catch or something like that you know that sort of thing so there's there's all sorts of fun emergent gameplay from uh, from all these little tiny systems and that's kind of why Eve is a little bit of a model for what. Um, I want to build it's, you know, I don't want to make a copy of Eve. Um, but the, the general philosophy of, uh, of building a systematic MMO is what I want to copy. Okay. No, I, I like that. I like that idea. I think it's, uh, having a, um, well, uh, first of all, we did talk a little bit about the idea of, of, of PVP and PVE and our initial draft. Uh, we're going to avoid PVP altogether. Um, when we sort of start out with these things, if we add PvP later on, that is uh, that is a question. But the idea is uh, you should be able to play this game um, without having to worry about losing your 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 stuff. You can be a casual player, as it were, and and not have to mm-hmm. worry about someone who puts in a lot of hours taking your uh, your things, right? Yeah, and I think when we talked about it, PvP uh, to us, um, we felt was better relegated to uh, more like a dueling type system or specific locations in the world, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, But from our personal desires, we... Even though I had a blast with with some with some PvP in uh, in Eve Online, um, I tend to want the more uh, relaxing strategy style game where I can set goals for myself of how I can better my character, better my base, better whatever it is, um, you know, and then you know be also thinking about how the world is evolving around me to try to fit with what my goals are. Right? Um, that's kind of the that's kind of where I want to see uh, a game that I want to play um, someday. Um, the PVP part just is uh, in the kind of the markets, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to compete with each other on, on prices on things or whatever. Um, and potentially, you know, uh, I, I don't know how much I've talked about this on uh, the podcast. I like the idea of letting the, the users like change the world some extent um so i've I've had this idea of having like community driven goals um so like if you know we've talked about it being a space game so we haven't really talked about how you navigate between systems if we have a uh stargate style navigation system where you can only navigate between uh different locations uh far locations using a uh, stargate so you jump from one gate to another gate in a direct connection type uh, setup. Um, and in that type of navigation system, uh, because you're limited of where you jump, like it could be cool to a- allow uh, the community to raise enough resources together to build a new Stargate from connecting new systems. Um, and I like that idea of of letting the users kind of evolve the world um, as, as part of it. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think? 
I think that is a I think that is a very good idea. Um, there are there are obviously if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, but what happens? Like, can I build two stargates next to each other and 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 all these things? There are obviously <laughs> thoughts that has to be had around this. Maybe maybe doing something like limit to one stargate per um, specific area and region. Yeah. And, and, and so on, um, and naming systems and all that. And how do you how do you get to a how do you get to a um, how do you get to the endpoint of a stargate before you 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 build one? Right? So how how would we how would we do that? Do you kind of have to fly in sort of a slow impulse drive, or or if we have like a, a, a faster drive, but you sort of have to fly out to where you're gonna build the Stargate. So first you have to go and explore a new region, bring more people there, convince them that it's worth to build a Stargate to this system, and then um, start doing that. Yeah, I the way that I had thought about it, and this we don't, this is all just spitballing. So at this point, you know, everything I say is a uh, stuff that may not ever make it into a game, right? Um, the way that I've envisioned it is that uh, we, as the game authors, would uh, identify various goals that might be interested, or maybe even the the we see, hear community members, man, I really wish I could jump between these two systems, or whatever, right? Uh, you know, so maybe may we have a way for them to submit ideas. I don't know, but we come up with the like these. These are the community projects um, that uh, what I would say is like an NPC faction, you know, like a political body of sorts uh, have decided to try to accomplish. And so you're going to be like delivering the resources to like an NPC faction saying, hey, these resources are meant for this goal. Um, and so then if they complete that goal, it would get done from a lore perspective. I would imagine that players aren't flying around with construction ships all the time, you know, like hypothetically speaking. And so it would make sense that there's only so much need for these long distance colonization type ships that can build stargates to exist. Right. Um, and so uh, what if the factions are essentially the only ones that really can do that? So you, you kind of have to petition a faction to support building the new stargate. Then they, uh, you know, take it on as an official thing that they're doing. Then the community can actually power it. And then once it actually has all the resources, the faction itself is what does the thing that sets up the stargate. So you're not having to worry about, this well we're not having to worry about the players having to traverse unknown territory so to speak um that's how in my brain i was going to solve it um but i am totally open to any other approach <laughs> um, i haven't i haven't thought of it um but uh I, I think you 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 should have a reason for why you want to build um uh, sort of an endpoint of a stargate somewhere i guess and then can you can you have one stargate linking to multiple um endpoints I don't know. I mean, that's that's something that we get to decide. In my brain, they're just one to one, but um, you know, I it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You know, um, we haven't even talked about what lore. I mean, fr frankly, we haven't technically even agreed that we want stargates in our in our, uh, in our game yet. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's so many different ways to navigate around space. Um, and, you know, like you could have ships that have special drives that can jump further distances, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, there's wormhole generation. There's, you know, actually just accelerating really, really fast, you know, until you eventually slow down at the midpoint, you know, that sort of like there's all sorts of ways that you can deal with interstellar travel. Mm. How, do, how do you deal with interstellar travel in your personal life right now? That's an important um, question to answer. Oh man, I forget how fast the Earth is flying through space relative to the sun, but uh, 
you know, we're all flying pretty fast right now. Uh, we just don't think of it that way. <laughs> so. This is true, right? What a stressful thought. Slow down. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what? So we we touched. So we we we've sort of we haven't talked a lot about um, various concepts of the game. And and I've been a little bit cautious, of course, when we've been doing this, not to say things because I don't want to promise things. But I think it's fine to discuss things that may or may not ever be because we're just throwing ideas around. So I think that's perfectly fine. Right? Um, one thing that I'm quite excited about, and I don't even know why I'm excited about this, is that we're talking about making the game as a library. So I don't know if this has been done before. Probably have, but I haven't seen it. And I think it's quite interesting that you you can have the game as a library. So you're interacting with the game. You can interact with the game through um, various platforms, right? You can have different language bindings if you wanted to, to the game, because you're just talking with it through the library. I think that's quite exciting. What do you, What are your thoughts around that? I think it is too. I mean, we haven't really talked too much about um, our, our vision of that. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it, it's similar to how my vision for Bonsai uh, DB is, is that, um, I like writing Rust code so much that I only want to write Rust code. Uh, and so uh, the, the development flow for working with Bonsai DB is all Rust. There is no way to currently use Bonsai from another language. Um, but my path for getting there has been inspired by seeing like the PyO3 um, project, which uh, allows you to create bindings uh, for your Rust library in Python really easily. And there are similar uh, projects for other languages too. Um, and there's a, there's a large movement of people who are writing plugins or uh, extensions or whatever you want to call them for other languages uh, in Rust and then using these you know binding generators. And so my strategy for how do you access Bonsai DB from other languages in the long run was always going to be take the Bonsai DB client crate and wrap it with one of these wrappers essentially. Um, and I think that that strategy is, is working well for a lot of projects out there. You still need someone to help you maintain all those, you know, individual front ends. Um, but that's, I think the same approach that I'd like to see us take with the game is yeah. Creating a crate that we use as the client crate. And that's the exact interface that we use uh, to make our user interfaces. Um, and that would allow other people to, to do that as well. Um, one of the downsides of that approach is uh, potentially making it a lot easier for bots to be written. So what do you think about, what do you, what do you think about that problem? That is, that is a very, very true. Um, question is, is bots going to be an issue? Is it, is it going to be worth for people to write bots? Is it going to be, should we prohibit bots or should we welcome the idea of bots? Um, it's a difficult one, right? Um, yeah. I, I don't know if we think about this from the perspective of, of, um, sort of, of, of a fun challenge as a programmer, right? And this might not be your, your average player, but, um, as a fun product, imagine that you can create a, a player character that is a form of, of robot. Then you could technically script this thing to be your robot companion in the game, right? By, by how you program it. So that is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if we have a player-driven economy, you could destroy a lot by allowing people to write bots. You could have bots doing farming of resources that can also be problematic. So there, there is definitely an upside and a downside to, to having this. And I honestly don't know, um, without us going into more details and having a bit of a, 
a moment to think on it if it's a good idea or not <laughs> come to think no of it, I, it's i i've i've thought about this for a lot a long time i mean you know uh i have been wanting to make my mmo for three years now so i have done a lot of thinking um that being said i have a lot of flexibility because to me almost none of these systems of how we approach different things is perfect like that's the fun part about in my brain game design is that I think there's a lot of interesting, good ideas out there, but you can throw them all together and it turns out that it's not fun still. And so like there's, there's an element of like puzzle solving of how do you put all these different pieces that you think you want to have together in such a way that they actually work and are fun. Um, yeah. I, I t- so, you know, with a botting touches on so many topics in my brain. Uh, at the end of the day, if we're doing a player-driven economy, even if it's only partially player-driven and we have a lot of you know knobs that we can turn on it, um, the moment that we allow a free account, if we support free-to-play, that's another question. That's why I'm saying it touches on everything, uh, to use the API for you know automating actions uh, is the moment that I think that that free-to-play economy just go dry, you know, everything inflation goes rampant uh the market's flooded with resources because bots are just farming everything right um and the way to prevent that to me is to either force you to have to have a paid account to use the api or you know limit the number of actions but the moment that i think about limiting actions the moment i start worrying about the actual enthusiastic player who is is actually truly playing the game for real and reaches that action limit, right? Um, you know, you you hate to penalize the non-bot for seeming like they're a bot. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a way to balance it, but I don't want to find myself in five years um, fighting, um, you know, bot detection, you know, constantly, right? Um, so like part of me wants to embrace purely from that standpoint um, of less... Uh, administration overhead. I think we can make this very simple by just having a checkbox when you create an account. It says, <laughs> are you going to use this account for malicious intent? And then we just exactly. stop everyone who says yes to that. Right? Um, no, it is a really difficult, it is a really difficult thing to solve because like you said, you don't want to penalize anyone who's really enthusiastic and wants to play the game, which would be me, right? I don't want to be penalized for, um, uh, you know what, you know what just occurred to me? Are we going to have time to play the game we want to play because we're busy <laughs> making the game we want to play? Do you think we're ever going to sit down and play this? Or are we so just- <laughs> I see a lot of this game being a... like. If I think back to my years of playing EVE Online, um, I would log in while I was working. Don't tell you my coworkers. I'd log in while I was working um, and just hang out a lot of the times, um, You know, just chatting. Um, and that's a really expensive game to have running on your computer while you're working too. Like, you know, that's one of the other reasons why I want to create kind of a lo-fi game is I mm. want it to be really easy on the system when it's just sitting there. Cause I like the idea that you can kind of just have, uh, an escape from what you're doing in your normal life and just jump into it for a few minutes here and there, you know? Um, and when you've made friends in these games, you may not actually want to put them on your, you know, you might, you might not actually want to have, give them your phone number for text messaging, you know, uh, and you know, discord is really nice. Right. Uh, but you still have to have some shared location to meet, um, you know, and to me, all those structures exist in the game already. So why wouldn't you just be able to chat in the same chat windows that you had without having to have the entire game running, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, 
I don't know. I'm off on a rant of of all these things that I want in a game. I, I have too many ideas. I think is the is the short answer. <laughs> well, it's better to have too many ideas than to have no ideas. So I think that's that's a is a positive problem, all things considered, right? Um, but that is also that is also touching on another thing, right? The communication within the game. Now we certainly don't have enough time left today to go into that, but that is something we should discuss at some point. How we're yeah. going to operate channels of communication. Um, and, and, you know, broadcast channels, how to tackle spam. And again, uh, this is where botting could become a problem and so on and so forth. And to me, chat is probably one of the things we're going to tackle sooner rather than later, uh, because Absolutely. you don't need as much of an interface around getting that set up. And chat can already have, uh, you know, can be tied into a room slash location system um, pretty easily uh, without having to have necessarily everything figured out yet. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that we're going to probably end up talking about chat a lot more in the in the coming episodes because we'll hopefully be able to start working on it pretty soon. I would I would like to think so. I would like to think so. I would like to think that uh, my goal was to be um, to to start on the final set of of functionality uh, before my release. But given all the things that are happening, it has been pushed back. But I'm hoping that maybe next week, maybe maybe one day, <laughs> we'll do an episode and I'll and I'll say that I'm done with the viewport. I am done with the unit tests and uh, I'm fine. I'm tidying up the documentation because that is very important, right? When you're mm-hmm. build, when you're writing code that potentially is going to be used by other people is that you provide them with not just a straight up API documentation, because that would just tell you how something works, but it doesn't tell you how it hangs together as a whole. Right. So I have to, so uh, when you're writing the documentation, right. did you run into situations where, uh, you decided you didn't like how it was, how you would have to write the documentation. So you decided to change this functionality instead. <laughs> no, not yet. Okay. At least. Um, I did, I have run into, uh, well, what happened is I was writing documentation for how to do a widget implementation. And I, I felt that this was depressingly complex. Like this is not, I asked you the other day, so how did you, um, solve custom widgets rather um, innocently? But my ulterior motive to the question was, I hope you came up with something better than what I have <laughs> because this is too hard. Um, there's the, the, the performance requirements are there and that has led to um, a lot of lifetimes in the interface and uh, I think a lot about people who are beginning the programming journeys I think a lot about software from the perspective of uh, not people who have been writing software for decades but people who are at the beginning of the journey I I do think a lot about these things and um, that that sort of makes it difficult when you have a complex interface that you're asking someone to implement, right? You're just saying, here's mm-hmm. a trait you need to implement for a widget, and that's great. And here's 30 lifetimes that accompanies this trait. And <laughs> they will have no idea how these things, what they are, sort of what they belong to, and why is the value's lifetime different than a template's lifetime and, and, and all these things, right? And so, yeah, I, I kind of run into that. Well, how do I make this? How do I keep this optimized and, and performant? And how do I get rid of complexity for the end user? Right? Now, of course, 
uh, you can you can sacrifice one for the other by sprinkling a few RCs in there and but I don't feel like that's, an, that's I don't I don't like that solution for for this particular problem right so that is that is a little bit of something that I, I got in the back of my mind but um, you know what we're as software developers we are allowed to make new versions we are allowed to make breaking changes it's, especially if we signal this to the users right no one wants to do a patch update and have their entire um, uh, dependency chain collapse because this minor patch update, um, well, minor patch, that was a confusing thing to say. This patch version, if we're talking about semantic versioning, this patch update actually breaks backwards compatibility and, and, and all sorts of things, right? Because uh, maybe you've upgraded dependencies, major or minor version as part of your patch. Um, maybe you have made a breaking change without realizing it. Did did, yeah. did did you look over my shoulder this past week? Because <laughs> uh. I I something literally happened. I'm not going to name the crate, but there was a, uh, a, a a a patch version update that updated major ecosystem things that broke some builds for me. Oh my! I think I, I mean uh, uh, listen, mistakes happen, right? I, I say oh, totally, um, totally. This as well, right? So, so I would never. The thing is, I would never point a finger and say, "Oh, this is bad code," right? Because there, there's. We all have days when we write bad code. I think if you, if you, if you think that you always write perfect code, you are delusional, right? I think we all make like write bad code but code is an iterative thing right you write code and then you make it better right it's, it's like um it goes through the cycles the refactoring cycles right you write something it works and then you write it, you you look at it and you think how can i improve this and then you improve it a little bit and you keep you keep that iterative process going. but okay mm-hmm. i don't, can't speak for other people but that's kind of how i i work on code right i kind of just draft something and then i make it better right um uh, and 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 the, the original drafts are usually quite bad. The the, the first version of of this uh, text user interface library I'm working on was hideous. It was it was ill performing, and uh, yeah, there was just so much wrong with it. Um, but at that point, I scrapped it and started again and over and over and I go with this. But now I'm I'm kind of I'm moderately satisfied, and I've accepted that this is what I'm going to release, and this is going to come back to that. I will accept that there are going to be complexities, and um, at some point, if I can make uh, an improvement to the to the to how this thing is written, I will do so at the cost of breaking changes, of course. Um, because mm-hmm. this will be a long-term benefit, right? And I'm not saying we're going to throw out everything and, and rewrite it again, but sometimes you kind of have to break an interface or an API just to make this, um, just just to progress, right? It's different with mm-hmm. programming languages, but with libraries, um, especially small libraries, where I, like what I'm writing, I don't expect to have a large adoption of this. Uh, so I think we can we can tolerate that. Now I don't want to make anyone nervous who's going to end up using this library. That I'm going to then I'm going to destroy everything. Um, I would like to, um, and I've seen that you do this as well, right? When we introduce a breaking chain change, we also introduce uh, information on how to go from what you have to what is new, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that's really important in a in a open source project is to maintain a change log once you've. Once you've reached a, a certain point where you think that the project is 
good enough for other people to use in, and you've published it to me at that point, you should start a change log. Um, and, and you should be watching for those breaking changes and, and, you know, just updating the change log as you make the changes so that when you're ready for a new release, you're not hunting through all your, your diffs, uh, you know, what, what all you actually changed and, you know, trying to create one from, from your Git history. Um, it just, to me, it works much better by proactively maintaining that. Um, so I do that on projects once I've decided to publish them. I'll, I'll introduce the change log. I am going to have one entry in my change log going into the next version. It's just going to say everything because that's what <laughs> has changed between the versions. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time that we have for today. If you have anything you want to add? I know. I think that's good for me. Uh, apologies okay. if my waking up state has left led some interesting conversations here. I think it's great. Don't worry about it. I think uh, we're both waking up, uh, even though it's different time zones, is is something that rarely happens. But uh, but here we are. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's been listening, and um, um, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Until next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>